Who knows? But speaking of the Chinese government, um, this pastor that I listen to all the time, jdfarag.org, that's jdfarag.org, he, uh, F-A-R-A-G, by the way, jdfarag.org. He's been doing a Bible prophecy update every Sunday for like 15 or 16 years. So his time clock has been like half a second away from the end for a long time. So he's, you know, every week he gets so excited about this is the, this is the last, this it's happening. You know, all this stuff's going on. So last week, and he's uh, Arab by the way, and his assistant pastor is black and he lives in Hawaii. So it's, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, but last week at the end of his prophecy update, cause he's been on this COVID thing since last April, you know, he's all over it. Um, he asked his listeners to email him if they've had any personal experience with the COVID vaccine, good or bad, but obviously nobody's going to email him and say, Oh, it's great. I haven't died yet. So he came on his Bible prophecy update this week, which would have been um, the 30th, May 30th, 2021 jdfrog.org. Um, and he's a, he's a 100% full on sold out pre-trib rapture guy. So I don't, you know, I'm still hopeful, <laughs> but I don't necessarily know that I agree with it. But anyway, the week before he asked people to email in, well, he got 2000 responses from people saying, you know, my daughter took it and she was dead in two days or, I mean, just heartbreaking stories of these people who were injured apparently for life or who died. And I mean, it was, it was eye-opening, <laughs> you know, and he has a few more viewers than I do, like about a million and a half more. So, you know, but still 2000 people that listened to him reported horrible vaccine stories of death and destruction so if, uh, if you remember back when the vaccine first came out, the first person to get it, at least in Europe, was in England, and it was an old guy named uh, William Shakespeare. And of course, they picked him and made, you know, all the TV stations were there, and William Shakespeare's taking the first vaccine and all that stuff. Uh, well, William Shakespeare died last week of a stroke, so... And he, it's been, what, five months since he got the vaccine. Um, the health minister of Romania last week or the week before was, you know, out in front of the television cameras saying everybody needs to get their vaccine. It's available in Romania now and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he got it, took it. Two hours later, he was dead. Popular 28-year-old model in Sweden, same thing, doing all the commercials. And, you know, oh, we need to do this for the betterment of the neighborhood. Took it, hour later, she was dead. Um, another 35-year-old celebrity whose name escapes me um, went in, same thing. We had to take the vaccine. He died in the arms of the nurse who gave him the vaccine. There's 200,000 people in Europe so far that have experienced serious consequences and 10,000 people that are dead. And the people that, you know, keep track of that stuff say the number is probably 100 times that. Um, there's been thousands of mis miscarriages, and I personally believe, just based on past experience, 
um, that you're going to find all of these people or a lot of these people who took the vaccine are sterile because that's always been the purpose of Gates and his vaccines is to sterilize the population. So he's in Africa or he's in India or he's in the Philippines or all those nations that have all kinds of people that the humanists want to get rid of. So he goes in and gives them a free vaccine, which sterilizes, paralyzes, and or kills you. Um, in 2017, Johns Hopkins University, who is uh, actually where Satan himself lives, he's got an office on the top floor of Johns Hopkins. As I understand it, I've never been there. Um, they came out with this vaccine that is contagious. So if you give it to one person, um, it will pass on just like any other, you know, illness or disease through the people that they've come in contact with. And that was supposed to be the greatest thing ever. And we watched a show um, called, I think, The Last Ship or something. And it was about, you know, it was kind of weird watching this show because it had been filmed maybe about this time, 2017 or something. And we were watching it on Netflix or Hulu or something. So this was after the fact. And the show was about this pandemic that had ravaged the world and killed most of the people. And, you know, all these things had happened and wars had happened. Anyway, this was the last ship, the last battleship of, or destroyer or whatever it was on Earth. Everybody else was dead. And so it's two or three seasons of, you know, the experiences of this last ship and all that stuff. And it was interesting in that program, number one, you had this whole concept of a pandemic that killed all these people. And then the subplot was there were a whole bunch of people that were unaffected by it. They were just naturally immune to it. And there were some people that lived through it and then they had immunity and all that stuff. But they're in these bands of, you know, marauding, you know, it's, it, you can imagine. So there's a scientist on board who had to go to the Arctic and find a certain bird or something to get a, you know, whatever. And so she's trying to make a vaccine. And so eventually she builds this vaccine that just like they say is contagious. So that was the hope they would go into these cities, sail this destroyer up the Mississippi or whatever, and find groups of people and they would inject a few of them. And then it would pass among the people and they would all be, you know, vaccinated and saved. Well, that's actually true. I guess. So given that fact, do you not think that this vaccine has characteristics like that or could, or the booster shots could, and I'm sure they're not giving out something that's good for you. They're giving something, you know, that are going to, yeah, well, hopefully Fauci gets what's coming to him because this is all his research, all his gain of function that they did in the United States until 2015. And, and Obama made him move it out of the country. So he moved it because he knew what was coming. You know, he didn't want to be responsible for that. So he moved it to China. That's perfect. So, you know, Obama and, and Fauci moved their research to Wuhan. I mean, it's their research. This is his thing. So, yeah, hopefully he pays the price for that. But uh, anyway. So if you've been watching the news at all over the last couple of months, and it's just been ramped up huge this last week, it's this whole alien thing, you know, and they're showing you videos of 
these alien spacecraft and we it's not one of ours you know we can't do that and now all of a sudden it's a big deal and so you're going to be hearing more and more about it and the government has started this new program to get to the bottom of it marco rubio wants to find out who these people are you know and it's like huh but that's always been how how the world ends that's the thing that they use you know i mean since i was a new christian 30 some odd years ago that was what they said is all the new agers were saying oh well a time is coming when you know a bunch of people are going to be taken off the earth and those are the people that are going to have to be re-educated and they're going to go to the, and the aliens are going to come get them and re-educate them and bring them back so they'll be smart uh uh, Black Lives Matter people like us. So uh, I would expect to see the whole alien thing just explode. I mean, it's already exploding because I think that's that's just part of the end times thing. I think it has to happen to, to convince everybody there's aliens out there and they're coming to get you and maybe you need a vaccine against the aliens. So, um, you know, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. So last week I mentioned, um, and, and I've mentioned it several times, and I get everything from blank stares to, you know, what's that guy on, and how come I didn't get any of that at dinner? Um, this idea of uh, the Tower of Babel was not about height; it was about building a stargate or an interdimensional portal or something, and I just. I, I set out this morning to select a few verses that might buttress that idea because when you say it like that, it sounds like you're crazy. But we all read the same book and we've read these verses hundreds of times and just read over them, not really thought too much about it. But explain this without some sort of interdimensional portal or something. Um, sheet 2.8. Oh, and there was probably a picture up there. What was the picture of? Oh, can you go back to that? That picture? Can you see that picture? That's the picture I talked about a month ago or so that I thought was so cool, a picture of the Garden of Eden. And those are, you know, the three, that's God and Adam and Eve in their, their Shekinah glow and their light suits. And then when they, when they ate from the wrong tree, they lost that covering. And that's why they hid because all of a sudden they knew they were different and it's not as though they suddenly looked down and discovered something it's like they used to be covered in light they used to be energy or something and they lost that and they became like us and okay so anyway sorry i forgot to i never i can't put the pictures on my thing so i you know okay bear sheet 2 8 genesis 2 8 and Yahuwah Elohim planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man who he had formed. Okay, so two things. One is Eden is an area, and then eastward in Eden is where the garden is. And, you know, that's pretty obvious just from reading it, but we don't, tip, or I never did, typically work out some sort of picture in my head. But how did he get there? You know, did he walk there? I suspect God took him there. That's what it says. There he put the man who he had formed. And if uh, what we're going to get to is anything like accurate, Eden is a fairly large place and the garden is east in it, towards the east end of it. Um, it's, you know, it's not a, 
It's not a 20-minute hike. And there he put the man who he had formed. Uh, Masim, or Acts chapter 8, starting in 39. And when they were come out of the water, the spirit of Yahuwah caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotis, passing through. He preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Okay, again, you've read that and you thought, oh, yeah, you know, I don't know if it's like me. You just thought, oh, that's cool. You know, he zapped him somewhere else. But how do you get from Egypt to Azotis, which I think is over, you know, in, in the, well, it's obviously in the Middle East, over in Israel there somewhere. And he went to Caesarea and all that stuff. He just, he, he was, he was taken there. And when we read it, it's not that big a deal. But when you think it through, how did that happen? You know, it had to be some sort of, you know, interdimensional portal or something. And I sound like a fool for saying it, but, you know, that's what you see in Star Trek, right? Beam me up, Scotty. Uh, Quarantine Sheeny, which is Second Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 2. And I knew a man in the Messiah above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, Elohim knoweth. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. Well, what does that mean? And how do you get there? You know, it had, it's, it's again, it's this interdimensional portal thing. Bereshit 28, and he dreamed and behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of Elohim ascending and descending on it. And that was uh, Jacob, Israel, you know, uh, with this vision. And how would you describe it if you saw angels coming up and down between heaven and earth? You know, you might be tempted to say it was a ladder or, but they could somehow do it. Yochanan chapter six. Uh, and by the sea arose a reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, they see Yeshua walking on the sea, drawing near unto the ship. And they were afraid, but he saith unto them, it is I, be not afraid. They willingly received him into the ship and immediately the ship was at land where they went. So the, the vessel is 30 furlongs out into the water. And as soon as he gets on, it goes 300 furlongs immediately to the other side. How does that happen? Bereshit 5, and Enoch walked with Elohim, and he was not. For Elohim took him. And Enoch walked with Elohim, for he was not. For Elohim took him. Okay, that might be a mistake. Um, Ivrim, Hebrews 11, by faith, Hanak was translated that he should not see death. He was not found because Elohim had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased Elohim. Masim, or Acts 12, and behold, the angel of Yahuwah came upon him and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Kepha on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And, he, and so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And wist not that it was true, which was done by the angels, but he thought he saw a vision. I mean, he couldn't believe this himself. And when they were past the first and second ward, they came to the iron gate that leadeth into the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street and forthwith the angel departed from them. How, how does, you know, how does that stuff happen? 
Bereshit chapter 18, and Yahuwah appeared to him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat at the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the, the tent door, and he bowed himself to the ground. So these three, three guys just show up out of nowhere in the middle of the desert, and we know, you know, later who one of those guys was, Bereshit. And this is where they went, chapter 19. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, evening, Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. These were the guys that were just in the desert with Abraham. Uh, I have never figured out how to say this. Revelation chapter 1. And I was in the spirit the day of Yahuwah, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in the book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and, and uh, to Laodicea. He was on Patmos. He was on an island that has no other people. How did, how did they, okay, so you can do the same thing. There's the, uh, somehow, somehow he appears to Mary in Mark 16, uh, to Salome and Mary, the mother of Jesus in Matthew 28, uh, appears to Peter in Luke 24, 34, uh, the men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24 also, the apostles without Thomas, Luke 24, the apostles with Thomas, John 20, 26, uh, he appears on the shore of Galilee, John 21, 1, on a mountain in Galilee, uh, with some of the other disciples, Mark 16. He appears to 500 people in 1 Corinthians 15. His ascension, he went up into the clouds, Acts chapter 9. He appeared to Paul after that, 1 Corinthians 15. How does that happen? There has to be some sort of this interdimensional portal or, you know, something. And what about the whole regathering thing? I mean, everyone looks forward to the rapture or Describe it as you will when we go to see the Lord in the air, right? Revelation 1, 7. And behold, he cometh with the clouds and every eye shall see him. And they which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Or uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. When we are alive and remain, we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Yahuwah in the air. And so we shall ever be with Yahuwah. So there are, and, and this is, you know, these are just the ones I could think of. I was thinking I would find two or three verses. There are hundreds of verses that read like this, that will tell you that there is some sort of a, a stargate or an interdimensional portal or a transporter room or something to move people around. And, you know, the uh, um, particle physicists, tell us, if you believe anything they say, that we live in four dimensions and anybody who lives in five dimensions or more could just pass through the things that we think of are solid. Because you've all seen the bogus Bohr model of the atom, you know, where you've got a little nucleus and then around it are these uh, protons that spin and that most of the atom is nothing. So, and, and I would suggest that those models are completely bogus and certainly they're not round, but that's for another, another day. Um, so the theory is if you live in a greater dimension than we do, you could pass through objects that appear to us to be solid as though they weren't. 
I, I don't know how that works, but you certainly see that in scripture where uh, Yeshua just passes through a locked door or a, a block wall or something. And you see people popping in and out of uh, one place to another. And there's stuff out there that we don't get. So when we were talking about the, you know, the great pyramid at Giza, that whole pyramid complex, and I was suggesting that there's a lot more to that than meets the eye, you know, that we still don't have a way to build that stuff and we can't build it with the accuracy that they built it with. And what was its purpose? And I think maybe there were several purposes, but there are certain things that are beyond dispute, that it's there. You can't argue that it's there and it's the size it is and it's oriented and you know all the mathematics in it are uh, not disputable. In fact, it's got 144,000 polished stones on the outside or did is not disputable like you know there's some dispute about how many blocks but the 2.3 million seems you know seems pretty reasonable um and there's no question it couldn't be, be built by normal human beings by people like us so it had to be built i mean how was it built well we don't know so you have to speculate and was it built by space aliens from another planet probably not so there has to be another answer. And I think, you know, I landed on and perhaps you did too, that it was built by these giants that we read about in the Bible, the Nephilim, the fallen angels, the people that would have had the knowledge because they had all the wisdom of heaven, all the things that we don't know. They would know how you get from place to place and how you go from heaven to earth. And, you know, they would know all that stuff. And they, we've read that they came down and brought things, knowledge to the people that they shouldn't have. And we learned things that we shouldn't have, war and weapons and all that stuff. Um, but why was it there? And I had speculated last week, I think, that there's a reason that it's right where it is. You know, it could have been anywhere if these guys were... Nephilim and they could pop in and out and go wherever they needed to go. It could have been anywhere. So why was it there? And my suggestion was that that was the place of the creation. That's, that's where God, you know, slapped the dust together of the plane and built Adam and, and breathed life into his uh, body, you know, gave him a soul and all of that happened right there. So whether the, uh, the angels were um, were building it to honor that event, you know, with information that Enoch brought to his sons, Methuselah and Seth and all that stuff. And they hired or constrained the Nephilim to build it or whether it was built by the fallen angels to sort of spite God. Um, I don't know. I kind of go with the repository of all wisdom thing. And it was Methuselah and Seth, you know, encouraging or somehow constraining the Nephilim to build all this stuff. But, but it, it doesn't, I mean, it does matter, I suppose. But, but I suspect that's why it is where it is. Because you would almost expect it to be in Jerusalem or somewhere in the promised land or something. But the Bible tells us repeatedly that his people are birthed in Egypt. And if, you know, if you take that absolutely literally, then... Adam was made in Egypt, right? Yeah, you know, that's what it says. His people were birthed in Egypt. So that to me makes perfect sense. So if, um, 
if that's true, and again, that's just my speculation, but if that's true, then that would be in Eden somewhere, right? So you might make a, you know, a circle or a drawing of what you know to be uh, true, and you could maybe get some sort of estimation of where Eden was. And then the Garden of Eden is in the east part of that. So if Eden is somewhere around, you know, say Gaza was the center of Eden. And if you drew a circle from the center of Eden to, you know, you include Shechem and, and a circle that comes around the other way, you've got an area there. And if the garden is eastward in that, um, that might give you some idea of where it is. But scripture gives us some more detail. It gives us some instructions and some landmarks to find where that is. So, uh, let me read a couple of things. Bear sheet chapter three. Um, and you know the context of this. So he drove out the man and he placed it at, the, at, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So if you, if, if you, if you're thinking Eden might be centered around Egypt, centered around the pyramid, and if the Garden of Eden is eastward of that, and if when Adam and Eve were ejected from it, they were ejected to the east, because it says he put the cherubim at the east of the garden, which is in Eden. So if you eject the guy eastward, you're sending him basically to Babylon. They're exactly due east of, as it turns out, Shechem is Babylon. So Bereshit chapter four, um, and again, you already know the context. And Cain went out from the presence of Yahuwah and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So it's the same place. It's to the east of the Garden of Eden, which is in the east of Eden. So it's it's in the same place. It's in the plains of Shinar. It's, it's, where, it's where Babylon is. Um, so Adam and Kava and Cain and his folks are essentially in the same place. Um, you know, and I, and I have a map that we'll get to. Um, that's the geographical note. Babylon is directly due east of Shechem. Just, you know, just saying. Okay, Bereshit chapter 10. It says the sons of Ham are Cush, Egypt, Put, Canaan and the sons of Cush are Seba, Havilah, and or Havila, that's the name of the land, Sabta, Rama, and Sabekta, and the sons of Rama are Sheba and Dedan, which is Saudi Arabia. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahuwah. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before, which actually means in the face of Yahuwah. So Nimrod was not following Yahuwah. He was opposing him. And he was a mighty hunter in the face of Yahuwah. So he was trying to uh, destroy the things of God. He was a Democrat. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you remember our discussions about 
uh, Noah and him, you know, getting drunk and being in the tent and Ham came in and, and the wording of that. And I hopefully made a reasonable case from Jasher and Jubilees and uh, uh, Barashit and stuff that the wording indicates that he came in and uh, had sex with Noah's wife. And if you remember the, you know, the discussions we had about Noah's wife, it appears as though the first two sons came from a different wife. And then he married uh, Naamah, who was uh, from the seed of Cain, from that side of the tree, but she followed the Lord. And if you remember, I think it was in Jasher, Enoch, I don't know, one, one of those, um, where it said that Noah didn't want to marry her and his father went to uh, to the Lord and discussed it. And he said, no, go ahead and marry her because I, I need to preserve the seed of Cain. So, uh, you know, that I mean, I'm not making that up. That's what it says. So if, if and, and well, it's not if that's true, it seems to be true. So if Ham came from a different mother who uh, was from the seed of Cain, then he would be half seed of Cain. And if their child came from a mother who's the full seed of Cain, then the child would be three quarters seed of Cain, right? He would be uh, hanging on the Nimrod sort of, and, and then Nimrod was one of the grandchildren. So you can sort of see how Nimrod has, he's probably almost full seed of Cain. And of course, he opposes the things of the Lord. So the Bible says he's a mighty hunter before the Lord, powerful hunter of, uh, of the Lord. He was actively working against him. And we've talked a little bit, and we'll talk more about um, the genetic modifications. I think we read three or four verses about that, and there's a Hebrew word for that. How these people, Nimrod and his group, were able to... Uh, genetically modify the animals. And you look in all the mythologies and you see these half man, half goat or horse or, you know, on the Geico commercial, the black guy is half guy and half motorcycle. You know, it's that same sort of idea. And Nimrod ha has uh, throughout scripture and extra biblical books. And you get the impression that Nimrod was born a man of normal size and he was somehow able to manipulate uh, himself to become a giant. And he was able to manipulate various animals and that uh, obviously did not sit well with the Lord. So these, these people, and this is all to say, going east of Eden, east of the Garden of Eden, you find yourself, that's where you find yourself with those people. That's the plain of Shinar. That's where uh, the city of Babel was. That's, or the tower of Babel. That's where Nimrod and his people were. And all of this stuff that was happening that was, uh, the Lord was not thrilled with. And if you remember again, and I didn't, don't have this, but Genesis six, uh, the Lord was looking down at their stargate or whatever it was they were building. And he came down to look it over. And he said, well, if we don't do something, you know, being, the Trinity, if we don't do something, these people will be able to do anything they want to do, which indicates they would have been able to build the Stargate, they would have been able to get back and forth, you know, to heaven or, and, and 
Oh Lord, so we we got to put a stop to it. So we're going to scatter the people and scatter their languages and and all of that. So that's that's what's going on just outside the gates of the Garden of Eden, I would suggest. So back to the story. Where's the Garden of Eden? So if it, it's got to be it's got to be to the west of Babylon somewhere and you know, I would suggest that the pyramids, the landmark for where you draw the stuff, it you know, kind of makes sense to me. I don't know, but that's the speculation part. So Bereshit chapter two gives us some more clues. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and came into four heads. And the name of the first is the Pison. And it is that which compasses the whole land of Havila, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And there is bedillium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. And it is the same that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is the Hidikal, which goeth towards the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we've sort of assumed, or I've sort of assumed and taken you there, that Eden and the, specifically the Garden of Eden is to the east of Egypt, maybe to the northeast of Egypt. And I'm putting it near Shechem and you'll see why next week um, or Jerusalem or, the, you know, because everything in scripture is, is focused on that area, right? The promised land, Shechem, Jerusalem, all, everything happens there. So it makes sense to me to think that the garden would be there. But there's all kinds of people who have come up with different ideas. Um, Louise had read a guy who I know. His name is Stan Deo, Stan, Stanley Deo, Stan Deo. And he came up with uh, the Garden of Eden was in Tanzania. And he came up with all these good reasons and maps and charts. And one of the reasons is... Uh, there's a verse that says uh, when uh, Satan or the enemy was walking through the garden, he was walking through uh, oh gosh, what is it? rocks of fire, which volcanoes, you know, I, I can't see volcanoes in the Garden of Eden, but you know, who knows. And there's all these volcanoes in this valley in Tanzania that he's got all these rivers and, and he thinks it's there. And then there are people who think it's um, the, by the Gulf of Aden. You know, it's that land spit by Saudi Arabia and stuff. And I think the only reason they think that is the similarity of the names. I can't find anything that. Uh, and then some people think it's in Turkey. And again, you're looking at the different uh, rivers and you can sort of make a case for that. And, you know, a lot of people, most people probably think it's in Israel or, you know, near Jerusalem, that general neck of the woods. So there's all these different ideas and you know they all have some merit i mean except the whole gulf of aden thing um but it should be you know given all the information we have it should be reasonably simple to find the garden of eden and the reason i think it's important is because if you remember from the first word of scripture he's building a house and he wants us to live with him so you know, it'd be kind of nice to know where that house is. And I suspect that house is in the Garden of Eden, you know, and I suspect that is in the promised land. So we, the, the verse I just read in, in Bear Sheet, 
remember who wrote that? You know, who wrote the first five books was Moshe, right? Moses, as the Lord dictated it to him. Well, if you read it, it's all in the present tense. And he's describing places and things that the people would know. And if he was, if, if he was saying, you know, the river Euphrates and the, the Hittical and all, and there weren't any, then it wouldn't make any sense to anybody. But the way it's written, it's in the present tense. So it's like the Lord is giving him the location of where this is in today's terms. So I thought, well, we should, and it's not like I thought this, hundreds of people have thought this, thousands of people have thought this, and have decided to dig through what the Bible says. I mean, where, where is this? Because this should be pretty simple. You know, and a lot of people say, well, you know, the flood would have destroyed them all. And, and that's true, but he's not describing them before the flood, apparently. He's describing them after the flood because it's all present tense. He didn't say they were there and we don't know where they are now. He's saying this is where they are. So uh, some of this is pretty simple. The Hittical River is mentioned several times and most prominently you see Daniel was sitting at uh, the River Hittical. Well, Daniel was in Babylon. So that's pretty simple. You go to a map and you see what river goes through Babylon and it's the Tigris. It's still there. It's exactly like what Daniel said and Moshe said. So that seems um, pretty simple. And, and, and I don't know if Tigris is a Hebrew word, but there is a Hebrew word that is Tigris and it means to surround. And if you look at what the Bible says about the Hittical, it surrounds, um, I guess, what you'd, we need to get to the maps, what you would call, uh, uh, no, don't go just yet, uh, Saudi Arabia and all the little fiefdoms, you know, the UAE and Bahrain and all that, that little spit of land. And the Tigris would have gone around it, what's now the Gulf of Aden and, and some of these other things. Okay, so the Euphrates is mentioned 19 times, and it's pretty obviously the same Euphrates that's there now, because it kind of goes exactly where they say it goes, and it sort of parallels the Tigris. It's a little south of that. Um, so those two rivers are still there, and they're easy to find, and you know where they went. The, the land has shifted some, and we'll get into some of this um, maybe next week. Um, but the peace on is a little different because <laughs> it's only mentioned once in scripture. And all we know about it is there's gold there and bedillium and onyx. But we do know for a fact that there's this uh, huge dry riverbed that runs across Saudi Arabia, east to west, or, you know, it sort of cuts that in half. And it's not there anymore. But it, you can see this immense, far bigger than the Euphrates. It was a huge riverbed. So if it's pretty much smack dab in the middle of Saudi Arabia, and I'm thinking, well, it should be easy. We should be able to find gold there. Well, what do you find there? Oil. Well, how would you describe oil in, you know, 5,000 years ago? It, it would be meaningless because it's not olive oil. It's crude oil. Black gold. That's right. Jed Clampett was right. It's black gold. And I just thought that was interesting, you know, because if, if, if the Bible says 
there's gold in this land. Wouldn't you think everybody and their brother would be there trying to dig it up, finding the gold? And it's, I mean, it's almost too much of a coincidence that there's no gold, but there is some of the largest supplies of crude oil in the world right underneath this dry riverbed that runs exactly where we need it to run. So that could easily be uh, the Pison River. Um, and again, that's, you know, but one of the things that sort of has me convinced, I mean, there is a huge dry riverbed. There's no question there was at one point a giant, huge river that ran there. And the way it lays out where that river is and, it, and the way that Tigris is and the Euphrates and we'll get to the Gihon, which is the nail in the coffin uh, to, to, to me, it forms this piece of land, which could easily be the Garden of Eden. And the thing that uh, kind of nails it for me is the children wandered for 40 years in the desert. So if you had... If, if you thought that um, the Garden of Eden was in Saudi Arabia or the Gulf of Aden or, or like that, then that means those 40 years they would have spent walking in the garden. Well, they didn't. They were in the wilderness. But if the Pison defined the, the southern, if you want to say the southern edge of the garden, then the 40 years wandering would have been in the desert. It wouldn't have been in the garden. And they would have had to pass through there to get into the Garden of Eden. So I, I, I don't know, you know, to me, it makes sense. But where's the Gihon? You have to have the fourth river, right? Okay, so um, let's see, should we do this? Yes, we can do this. There are an, a few verses, but there are tons of historical accounts about the temple in Jerusalem. And it has water in it. It has a spring in it. So there are, uh, you know, you can, you can do, I mean, that's where uh, Saul was, was, I don't know, crowned or inaugurated or whatever, was in this. That was in the pool of Siloam. Yeah, yeah, which is right there. Because just outside, well, and again, this is one of these things that uh, Buck's, common flannel graph Christianity because everybody tells you that the temple was on the temple mount. You know, it's where the Dome of the Rock is. Well, it's not. It couldn't have been for a variety of reasons. It's like a thousand yards south of that. And if you read through scripture and again through Josephus and there's a number of historians of the day and they describe um, the temple of Jerusalem is being, well, in, in fact, let me just read one. Well, this isn't it. Shemoth, Exodus 25, 8. It says, in, you know, and this is the Exodus. Let, uh, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in the middle of them. Tavak is that word, in the midst of them. He, the, you remember the picture, the temple or the temple in the wilderness was dead center among the people, right? They went out in all four different directions. It was dead center. And the wording is that let me build my tabernacle in the center of. Well, that was in the dead center. And that's a picture of the tabernacles to follow. So 
again, I mean, maybe it's splitting hairs, but to me, it seems like if that's the exact picture and the Lord was clear with Moshe, you have to follow my directions exactly. It's because the future temples were going to be exactly in the midst of the people too, which is where he wants to be. He doesn't want to be out in the suburbs somewhere. He wants to be in the midst of the people. Well, the city of Jerusalem is actually built on this little sort of crescent mound sort of thing, you know, one point points sort of the brook Kid, Kidron and then I uh, can't remember where the other one points, but the whole city is sort of built like a half moon on this little raised part. So if the temple was in the midst, it would be in the center of that, which would be like say a thousand yards southwest of where the temple mount is. But all of these things you, you read in scripture that um, the Romans, and I can't think of the guy's name, the Roman general, could look down and see the things happening in the temple mount or in the courtyard of the temple. Well, he couldn't do that if, if the temple was built on the temple mount. But I think, and again, it's not me. Most people that have studied this think that what we call a temple mount is actually where Fort Antonio was, where the Roman garrison was stationed. And every Roman garrison over the entire world was built exactly the same way. And it was built on a 35 acre plot that was specific to, you know, the barracks and the yard and all that stuff. And it would fit perfectly right there. And from there, he'd be able to look down and see the things happening in the courtyard of the temple and all that stuff. But then you go back to um, this idea of there being water in the temple well, how do you get the water in the temple, especially if it's up on this hill? You can't. I mean, unless you pump it, it's not going to flow uphill on its own. So there has to be some mechanism through which you get water to it. And there's nothing there. I mean, there's there's never been water on the, what they call it, Har-Sharif or, you know, what whatever the Muslims call that. There's never been water up there. I mean, to this day, there's not water. You have to pump it up the hill to get to the mosque. It's a terrible place to build anything because there's no water. So if you've got water in the temple or, you know, then that presents, how does the water get there? Do you have people hauling it up? Maybe. Is there some sort of mechanical? Maybe. I don't know. But there is a spring in the city of Jerusalem. And where is it? Dead center in, in, in this crescent moon thing it's dead center in the city of david which is why they built the place there in the first place well they built it there because god wanted it there but right dead center there's a spring and this and it's a weird spring it it has this chamber underneath and it's called a the word in hebrew is gihon it bursts forth so what happens is this chamber fills up with water depending on you know, the weather and the rain and, and all this stuff. And then when it gets full, it spurts up a bunch of water. So you never know when it's going to do it. But that's the word in Hebrew is Gihon. Well, that's the name of the river, right, is Gihon. That's the fourth river we're looking for. So, and this river runs underground through, through uh, certainly the area of Jerusalem and whatnot. It runs underground. So what you were talking about was the Pool of Shalom, which is just on the other side of the temple. And between the pool of Shiloh and the temple, there are these terraced gardens that they grew most of the food for the people in Jerusalem. And it was called the King's Garden. Well, it's watered by this spring of Gihon, but it doesn't burst forth all the time. 
So what they had to do is they had to build a big pool to collect it so they could use it all year as they needed it. And then when the thing would burst forth, it would fill the pool again. And if you think about, um, probably getting ahead of myself here. If you think about the story of, uh, that you were talking about, the, the, the guy was born blind and he'd been there for 38 years. And the, the account goes, when you see the angels stirring the water in the pool of Shiloh, if you're the first one in, you get healed. Well, if, this, if the pool of Shiloh is fed by an intermittent spring, there are going to be times when it bursts forth and it comes from underneath and it fills this pool. So, of course, the waters will, you know, and I thought that was interesting. And it's there. In fact, they call that the waters of Yeshua the waters of salvation, because it provided all the water for the city of Jerusalem. It provided water for the crops for them to grow. It was, it was literally the, the water of salvation, but they called it the, the water of Yeshua. And if you think that through, what was happening is this guy that was born blind. And one of the things that uh, the Jews, they have, they have this criteria, you know, we'll know when the Messiah comes if... And they've laid out all these things. And the very first thing, the first proof that the Messiah has come is that he will be able to heal a man born blind. So what happened at the pool of Shalom, the waters of Yeshua, and then Yeshua is standing there saying, do you want to be healed? And the guy says, well, yeah. So he makes mud from spit, puts it in his eyes, says, you go down into the waters of Yeshua, says Yeshua, and you will be healed. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great account, but it's also proof to anybody looking for the Messiah that that is the Messiah because that was the first proof that they needed. That was the only proof that they needed. If this guy could heal a guy born blind, we knew he was the Messiah. And not only did he do that, he did it at the waters of Yeshua. And that was this... I believe, river of Gihon, this spring, and that was the water that would come up in the temple because they had a pool there for baptisms and stuff. That was the water that watered the terraces and all the crops. That was the water in the pool of Shiloh. That's where Yeshua was. And when we get to uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll, obviously we'll do this before then too, uh, the water ceremony is huge. This is a giant deal. And the, the rabbis said, you have never truly known joy in your life until you've seen the water ceremony. And that seems, you know, Jews are good at exaggeration. It seems like that might be exaggerating a bit. But when you put it in context, that that is the water of salvation, Yeshua, and Yeshua was there and he was saying the things that he was saying I mean, it gives you goosebumps. This is this is everything the rabbi said it is. But anyway, that's um, that's what was happening. I was going to read you Yochanan uh, five. It says, "For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the waters, and whoever then first after the troubling of the waters stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had." Well, I would suggest to you that um, the troubling of the waters is caused by this intermittent spring bubbling water into that thing. And it was also, okay. And that word is Gihon. So, <clears throat> so I suspect um, that the, that is the Gihon. That's the Gihon River. 
and that's a car horn. We normally don't live in that kind of neighborhood, but. Um, <clears throat> so where did the Gihon go and where did it come from? Because it's underground and it does surface occasionally and you see it and all that stuff. But when you start looking at, uh, how much time do we have? Not that much. When you start looking at this, uh, this idea that there was one landmass on earth and in school they teach, uh, teach it as Pangea, thank you so much, Pangea, that somehow the continents have separated. You know, they've just drifted apart. Um, maybe. Basically, if the government or the government indoctrination camp public schools tell you something, I'm immediately against it and think it's probably a lie. But there is some really good science. Well, and it doesn't even take science. If you go to Google Maps, and again, I hate, you know, Google is the enemy too. But if you go to Google Maps and you look at the oceans, it's real easy on uh, the east coast of our country, the Atlantic, because the Atlantic is very small compared to the Pacific, to see how the, I mean, the continents fit together. They just fit together like a glove. Every, all the parts and pieces match. Um, did we get to the, the okay, let's, let's do them. I wish I had a way to put these Okay, so look, here's the rivers I was talking about. You, you see this uh, thing in the middle is basically Saudi Arabia, and you've got Oman and um, Yemen and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, and all. that's basically Saudi Arabia. And then Egypt is down here, and what we would call Israel is, is, is above. So you see the Tigris is the Green River, and you see it runs down into the Gulf of Aden. And if these continents were actually together, that would be a river that runs exactly where the water is, right? So it would loop uh, Saudi Arabia. And you see the Euphrates is the blue one. It's just south of the Tigris. And it at some point meets up with the Tigris and makes that same loop. And then you see the red one I'm sorry, the yellow one is the Pison. That's what is now a dry riverbed. But I would suggest it ran directly across Saudi Arabia. And if you, you know, remember that peninsula and the areas above it are basically floating on oil, on black gold. And then this red one is the Gihon. And the red one is intermittently underground and above ground. And it runs, and that's the Nile, what we would call the Nile. The, the red part where it gets to where Egypt is and the Nile would run down here and circle this land of Ethiopia. So to me, that makes a pretty good case. When you go, if you follow that line up to the top of the screen, obviously you're in, uh, let's see another one. Okay, so that's an actual map of what we see in, in the country. So this is what I was talking about, Saudi Arabia. And I suggest that those were originally rivers, not uh, the land has separated a bit, but that's where we are. And the Nile comes down. Okay, then you go to this one, see where Jerusalem is, see where Babylon is. Shechem is just south of Jerusalem. So it's, it's exactly, Babylon is exactly to the east. So if Jerusalem and Shechem and all that 
are in the Garden of Eden and you're booted out east, you're in the plains of Shinar. Your next stop is Babylon. So that's kind of the area we're talking about. Um, what's that? Oh, uh, 1,000 miles, 800 miles, something like that. It's a ways. It's a healthy walk. But if, go back to the first one again. The other first one. There you go. So if that area to the north of the Pison and to the south of the Tigris and to the east of the Gihon basically form the Garden of Eden, then Eden would be larger than that and, and it would be to the west. So Eden would encompass certainly Giza. You know, it would encompass uh, Egypt, what we say is Egypt and possibly part of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's interesting when you're reading um, Jasher, I think, has an account of a flood before the flood that destroyed or flooded a third of, um, can't remember how he phrased it. It doesn't say a third of Eden, but the impression is it flooded a third of the place of God's people. And if, you know, if this is anything like true, and if Eden is bigger than that, and if it went out into what is now part of the Mediterranean, about a third of it now is underwater as the Mediterranean. And there have been people speculating that, oh my gosh, that's where uh, Atlantis was, and you know, and all these other things. But I don't know that I buy any of that. It's just interesting that it, it seems to lay out right. And when you start thinking about the land all fitting together so well. And, on, you know, like I say, on the east, over the Atlantic, a child can see from a map that those countries just interlocked like magic. What's harder to see is they interlock on the Pacific side, too. It's just the Pacific is so big, it's hard to make that connection. And that's what I, when you go to Google Maps and you can see the stretch marks, and you see these stretch marks across the Pacific, that it seems like those land masses were uh, connected together at one point. And then you start reading things about, uh, you know, I named my children uh, Joktan and Peleg. And Peleg means to be broken up by a stream of water and Joktan means to be like to be made small or something. So why do you name your kids that unless something happened? And there's a guy, he's not a, not a Christian. He's, you know, something of an evolutionist. But he's got this model that all of the land was all connected at one point. And rather than the land breaking up, the earth got bigger. And he describes it as he, he puts all the land masses of you know, America just like on a globe. And so you have to buy the globe idea. Um, and then you let the air out of the balloon and all the land comes together to one piece. And it would work the same being on flat or being on a globe. If the world, if all the land is basically connected, and if those were rivers instead of, you know, the Gulf of Aden and Gulf of Suez or whatever those things are. Um, and then the, the land that the earth either got bigger or the balloon pumped up or whatever, and the land masses separate, you see exactly what we see today. And it's interesting when you go to the... Uh, you know, the United Nations map, which is a flat earth map. 
and you shrink it, all the land is connected and you grow it and they all split just like you see. And then again, you've got, you know, Peleg and Joktan, something happened. Um, and I don't know, I'm just saying, you can look at, again, Google Maps and you find what they call the North Atlantic Rift and the African Rift. And there are places that, that were rivers, but something happened, you know, the land moved. So now they're either underwater or the, the, the river has gone underground and they call these things rifts and it connects exactly to the Gihon and it runs both down into the Nile and up towards Greenland. And of course, you know, on a globe earth, you couldn't really do that, but on a flat earth, you could. And again, people have explored Greenland and discovered that uh, it's actually the world's biggest uh, impact crater. They've cored down hundreds of feet, miles maybe, and dropped dynamite down there. And then they read the, you know, the sound waves to see what it is. And they've discovered that it's six or 7,000 feet of ice that filled up a big crater and froze. So if there was this huge impact, and again, you could read um, Emmanuel Velikovsky's got four books, Earth and Collision, and I don't know, they're awesome books. Um, and he, he describes the possibility of Greenland being the place of a giant meteor hit. And there's this huge ring of destruction sort of emanating out from Greenland because the shape of Greenland means that this meteor or whatever it was would have hit the earth or the landmass at maybe 30 degrees because you see the shape of Greenland and it didn't just drop straight down. And this destruction zone goes thousands of miles around it. So you get up there to what's now the tundra and you find some really interesting things. And one of the things you find um, is as the glaciers are receding, they're finding these mammoths and other animals that were frozen, I mean, quick frozen. They still have food in their mouth. And a mammoth is bigger than an elephant. And the, they're frozen so quickly and so completely that now five, 6,000 years later, as they're being exposed, the, the locals are cutting the meat up and feeding it to the dogs because it's still that good. And they still had poppies and stuff in their mouths, which of course don't grow there now. There's no mammoths there now. And then you start looking at the tundra and they've always said the tundra is not really dirt. You know, it's this weird stuff and it doesn't really fully freeze. And well, the tundra is made up of the bones, the smashed up bones of all kinds of different animals mixed up with dirt and stuff. And that's why it doesn't freeze. It's not dirt. So where did all this come from? How did they get the poppies? How did they get the mammoths? How did they get frozen that fast? You know, and the only, there, there are no models for making that happen. You can't just freeze an elephant in two seconds and freeze all the things in his mouth and have them be good to eat, you know, 5,000 years later. There's no model to say that. But if you figure the, the meteor in Greenland, and there's several other hits around, you know, the same time in Mexico and whatnot if it actually came through the dome or uh, our atmosphere, however you want to phrase it, and opened for just a moment to the coldness of space and quick froze everything that was there and this impact and this crater and this you know, ring of destruction just fried everything, cr you know, crushed up every living thing and all you get's the bones and I mean, it makes some sense, but the point of it is the Gihon actually started up there.
and it and, and there's still a rift. You can see the rift that's now under the North Atlantic, and it runs down through Europe, and it comes. You saw the red part where it goes through uh, underground. It goes through Israel, and that's where you get these springs. And it just happens to be right underneath this place where the temple was, and it bubbles up water just occasionally. And that's where you get the pool of Shiloh, and that's where you get the uh, the Garden of the Gods and all of that stuff. It's just it's it's almost too much to think about, but it all fits so perfectly. There's nothing about that story that doesn't make perfect sense. You can be a a current evolutionary scientist and it makes sense, or you can be a Bible believing Jew and it makes sense, or you can be a Christian flannelographer and it makes sense. I mean, it's just it seems obvious. That's that's where all these rivers were. And the Bible, why would they even tell you that? Why would it be important for the Lord to tell Moshe where the rivers were and where the garden was if it wasn't important? And I suspect it is important and there was a purpose. And I suspect that purpose is that's home. That's the promised land. That's where we're going to go. That's where we're going to be like the, you know, the light, the Shekinah glow guys. That's where we're going to be walking in the cool of the afternoon with the Lord, looking like that in this awesome place. And and I don't know, that's just, how are we doing? Not too bad. Um, I don't know. That's where I'm thinking the Garden of Eden is. And we'll do some more next week.